Let me ask you now to give your attention to this passage from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 37. This is a continuation of the words of Jesus in answer to the question of the disciples at the beginning of this chapter. Would you follow along as I read aloud, beginning in verse 25? There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves, and you know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Would you please be seated and would you join me once more in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would open our hearts, that we might comprehend your word, that it might be used within us to challenge our own sin, to show us the glorious righteousness of your Son, to warn us to be vigilant and to wait on your return We thank you, our Lord and our God, for your faithfulness, and we ask that we would see more of your faithfulness this morning as we look together at your word. It's in your name we pray, amen. As we begin this morning, let me begin with a little story. There was a man, and he was reading passages like this one in the Gospel of Luke, about the return of the Lord Jesus. And he was reading passages from the book of Revelation. Wanting to comprehend what was happening in these passages, he decided he would start reading some books. And so he began reading. And the more he read, the more confused he became. He began to hear about things like premillennialism and postmillennialism and ah-millennialism. And he began to hear about a preterist and partial preterist and the rapture. 
super confused, this man decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go speak to my pastor. So he went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I, I'm now more confused than ever. Can you tell me what we believe about these passages? And the pastor said to him, well, it's very simple. I would say that my view is I am pan-millennial. And the man said, pan-millennial? It's a new one to me. I've, I've never heard that one. And the pastor said, well, it's very simple. I believe that it's all going to pan out in the end. I think I got that joke from Glenn Joshua. I'm not one for for good quirky jokes, but I think that came from Glenn. This morning, I think it helps to illustrate the very opposite point that we began with last week, and that is that there's an importance to trying to understand these complex passages Like, for instance, that we read in Luke chapter 21. You'll remember that Matthew and Mark, when they recorded these words of Jesus, they said in the imperative voice, as a command, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. And if I was to put that into my own words, I hear Matthew and Mark saying, here are the words of Christ, now you wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Try to discern the complex things that have been given to you now through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing both last week and this week. You remember last week we began chapter 21. This morning we'll be concluding chapter 21. Let the reader understand. That's what we're doing this morning together. Trying to comprehend exactly what the Lord Jesus would have us comprehend from this passage. Let me begin, uh, first of all, with a brief reminder of what we talked about last week. This is the two-minute version, okay? So if you weren't here last week, go watch the video because you're going to be a little bit confused as we continue the passage this morning. Last week, I mentioned a timeline that I thought was helpful for understanding the passage that we read, beginning in verse 21. And as we were reading last week, we made a few observations The question was asked by the disciples to Jesus as they were looking at the temple and Jesus said, this thing is going to be destroyed. They asked him the question, when will these things happen and what will be the signs of their happening? Jesus said a number of things to them in response to that question. First of all, he told them, you disciples, you, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who have just asked me this question, you will suffer persecution trials and hardship, and even some of you will be killed for my name's sake. We talked about last week how that happened really between the years of 40 and 65, that you could extend that even later into the late first century, okay? Between the years 40 and 65, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who had asked the question to Jesus, they suffered persecution and death, okay? And last week we found that in chapter 21... Verses 12 through 19. We then talked about how Jesus mentioned the next things. And he he mentioned a number of geopolitical events that would mark that age. And he talked about wars and rumors of wars. And he talked about famines and pestilence, okay? That was mentioned in Luke 21, verses 8 through 11. Then Jesus said they would witness the abomination of desolation. You remember that? Those big fancy words that we said 
really depicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says the things that were predicted by the prophet Daniel concerning the abomination of desolation. In Daniel, Daniel says the city would be destroyed, the temple would be destroyed, and there would be ungodly sacrifices that were offered on the altar. We, last week as we looked at the passage in 21 verses 20 through 24, we said it appeared that these events happened around the year 70 A.D. And if you remember, I said to you the emperor Vespasian and his son Titus invade the city of Jerusalem. They destroy the city. They destroy the temple. They kill 1.1 million Jews. Most people refer to it in Israel as the first holocaust. And Josephus, the historian, says that you could literally see blood coming down the steps of the temple because of the bodies that were being demolished by Titus in the temple. This fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel concerning the ungodly sacrifices in the temple. Okay? All of that last week at the beginning of chapter 21 is what we spoke about in relationship to the answer that Jesus gives concerning when would be the destruction of the temple. We continue the passage this morning, and Jesus moves forward in answering this question. And he is referring them now to their persecution and to the signs that they would witness and the destruction of the temple and the persecution that would follow. And this morning, as he continues to answer the when question and the signs of those events, he most importantly points them to this monumental event in verse 27. So if you would, look at verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus says this, And then, and if you remember last week, We said he's answering the question of when, so we expect lots of when phrases, like before and after and in between and immediately. And here he says, and then. So if we want, we could place this event on our timeline after the events that have already been spoken of in Luke chapter 21. And then, in verse 27 They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Now, if you're a visual learner or if you're a kid here this morning, this is a fun passage because we get lots of good pictures in the second half of chapter 21. And so I want to begin by drawing for myself a cloud. You heard the cloud mentioned there. I won't draw the Son of Man. I will draw the cloud. Jesus says, the Son of Man will come in a cloud with great power and glory. This is the event that happens after what Jesus has already mentioned at the beginning of chapter 21. And so what we wrestle with this morning, before ever answering a question of when, is a question of what. What is Jesus talking about? What does he mean when he says the Son of Man will come in a cloud with great power and glory? Thankfully, we have a lot of other contextual clues. Beginning in verse 25, Jesus said there will be signs, okay? Here are the signs. Signs in the sun and the moon and the stars 
and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are the signs of the coming of the Son of Man on the cloud with great power and glory. And we don't have time to go through all of the signs. Each of these signs, I, I think you could trace backwards and you would find these great connections to the Old Testament prophets. But this morning I want to look at three of them, okay? This morning I want to look at the sun. This is my sun. Or it's a sunny side up egg. The moon and the stars. Okay, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They're mentioned there in verse 25. Let me tell you, Matthew and Mark, they add a little bit of commentary to these signs. Well, not commentary. Here's what they say uh, Jesus said at this moment. Jesus said that the sun will be darkened. Okay, I'm going to make my sun dark. That the moon will cease to give its light. Okay, the moon is darkened as well. And the stars would fall from the heavens. Okay? The sun would be darkened, the moon would cease to give its light, and the stars would fall from the heavens. These are the signs that Jesus gives for the coming of the Son of Man on the cloud with great power and glory. Okay, these are the signs. Now what we have to ask ourselves, very simple question, what is happening here? What should we expect to happen what has already happened or what will happen? How do we understand what is happening here? Are we waiting for a moment where we will emerge from our houses one day and say, oh, the sun is dark. The moon has ceased giving its light. The stars, there's no more stars in the sky. The Son of Man must have come. If that's our conclusion, that is an interpretation of Scripture through our own experience. That is to say, we would expect our experience to interpret the passage. We're waiting for a moment. What we're doing this morning and the way that we always interpret Scripture is that we let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? This is the number one rule for understanding God's Word. We let the Word of God interpret the Word of God. So we take all of the Word, and if we can understand it or comprehend it or refer to it in our resources, we, we look through the lens of the Word of God at the Word of God, and we say, what does it tell us about this passage? One thing very interesting, this is not the first time we hear these phrases, Okay? If we enter into understanding Luke 21 without the background of the Old Testament, we look at this passage and we really mess it up. Okay? This is not the first time. This is not like the tenth time. We, we see these phrases many times throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. Okay? Isaiah 13. Make sure I got this right. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10. In Isaiah 19, uh, Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, the Lord God is speaking about the judgment that is about to befall Babylon. And this is what he says. Isaiah 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Okay? The same is true if you're to talk about the judgment on Babylon. The same is true in Isaiah 34, 
verse 4. The same is true of Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 31. Again and again, the judgment that is about to fall Babylon is described as the darkening of the sun, the moon ceasing to give its light, and the falling of the stars in the sky. There's another example. In Ezekiel 32... Ezekiel 32. I know this is becoming a mess up here. I hope you can discern it a little bit. Ezekiel 32, beginning in verse 7. This is God's judgment on Egypt. Okay, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens, and I will make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares God. The Lord God. Okay? That is the description that Ezekiel gives from God through Ezekiel of the judgment that is about to befall the people of Egypt. And if we had time, we would go through a number of other examples of this in the Old Testament. We see a number of examples of divine judgment that is described by the darkening of the celestial lights in the heavens. So I think we can make a conclusion this morning. What is happening, as described in Luke 21, verse 27, is very simple. This is a picture of divine judgment. A picture of divine judgment. The sun ceasing to give its light, the moon going dark, the stars falling from heaven... Even the other cataclysmic events described here, if we were to trace these, the crashing of the waves, the distress of the nations, you would find each of them included in the Old Testament prophets foretelling the destruction of nations, okay? That is to say, everything that Jesus utters here, it's not ironic. It's not as if he stumbled upon words. You're like, oh, Ezekiel said that too. Jesus probably didn't even know, right? Not the case here. Jesus pulls on a picture that he is intimately aware of, that his disciples also would have been aware of, and they all would have said, yeah, that's the picture of judgment. That's divine judgment that Jesus now speaks about, okay? The picture is clear. One of the magnificent things about this picture then is, what is Jesus' depiction of the judge? Who's the judge in this prophetic picture? It's Jesus himself, isn't it? You will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. That's the picture of the judge. Here he comes. He is the one coming to reconcile, to render judgment. And so this is the picture that is being painted as Jesus answers their question. That's the what of Luke 21, 25, and following and yet then, our original question remains. That is, the divine judgment that Jesus speaks about in verse 27, when will this come to pass? Okay? When is the Son of Man coming in the clouds bringing divine judgment? When will the stars and the heavens and the sun and the moon, when will the lights of heaven be darkened with great judgment? And on whom will these things be executed? We might also ask the question in this way, okay? Think of us. We're, we are Christians in the year 2022. We are Mercy Presbyterian Church living in the United States. We might ask the question, 
where are we in relationship to this event? Are we over here looking back on the coming of the Son of Man that's already happened? Or are we right here waiting for the judgment of the Son of Man coming on the clouds to bring divine judgment? And let me tell you this, okay, before I answer that question. Usually when I write a sermon, I read maybe four commentaries, okay? This past week I read eight, and I will tell you not one of the eight agreed on an understanding of this passage, right? So what do you do when Calvin disagrees with Luther, disagrees with R.C. Sproul, disagrees with Vern Poitras, who disagrees with R. Kent Hughes, who disagrees with the rest of the guys that I read? What do you do? I'll, I'll tell you what you do. I've, here's my opinion. You tread lightly, okay? You tread lightly. You don't approach the passage with any arrogance, and you ask the Lord God, give us what we need to comprehend that which you have for us in this passage, okay? Let me just tell you briefly what are the two primary thoughts about Luke 21, 27, and then we'll end today with just what we can take from this passage, okay? First of all, it has been suggested, and I think reasonably so, that the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds happened around the year 70, sorry, around the year 70 A.D., around the year 70 A.D., okay? That argument is very simple, and that is to say everything that Jesus has said so far, we see a first century fulfillment. And so as Christ continues to answer a particular question from particular disciples about the destruction of the temple, this entire answer is about that particular time period, his apostles and his disciples. According to this perspective then, in Luke 21 verse 9, okay, Luke 21 verse 9, Jesus speaks about the end. And you remember last week I said that could be very well the end of the Jewish age, okay? According to this perspective in 70 AD, when the temple is destroyed, Ezekiel saw a vision of the Lord leaving the temple, okay? According to this perspective, the judgment of the Son of Man comes at that moment on the nation of Israel, okay? That is to say everything that Isaiah described about Babylon, their judgment, their divine judgment, everything that Ezekiel described about Egypt, the darkening of the sun, the judgment that fell on Egypt, is now being described by Jesus as the divine judgment that would befall the nation of Israel at this moment, okay? when the apostolic age moves forward and the temple is eventually destroyed. Here's another way to look at it. If you've ever asked the question, I've read the Old Testament, I've read the New Testament, I see that there's Israel and then there's a church, but where does the transition happen? Where is it like Israel's the people of God, but now there's a spiritual people of God who are descendants of Abraham? Where does that transition happen? You might answer that question and say, well, it happens here. It happens at this moment. The Son of Man figuratively coming on the clouds, bringing judgment on the people of God, most pointedly seen in 1.1 Jews or destroyed by, by Vespasian, but also this transition to the age of the church. Now let me tell you another reason why this makes sense. If you're following along in the passage, you probably noticed a transition in the personal pronouns, okay? 
That is, Jesus began answering the question in verse 5, saying, you, Peter, James, and John, you will be persecuted. You will see these things. You, 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 all the way through verse 24. And then the personal pronoun changes, doesn't it? Verse 24, 25, 26, 27, we begin to read they. What does it say about them? They will fall by the sword. They will witness the destruction of Israel, and they will see the Son of Man coming. That's most importantly in verse 27. They will see the Son of Man coming with this divine judgment. And then in verse 27, Jesus switches back to you, but you lift up your heads. You wait and watch, okay? One question we have to ask is who is the you and who is the they? Why does Jesus speak about two groups of people? According to this perspective concerning the coming of the Son of Man with judgment, we have the you, the people of God, and we have the they, that is Israel. That they will fall by the sword. That they will see the Son of Man coming in judgment. That they will suffer this great divine judgment, but you will lift up your head. That's one way of understanding this text. And I say that, to me, maybe is the most natural way of understanding the passage. There are problems with that. We won't go through all the problems, but I'll just mention a few for you briefly. Okay? The first problem is that in a lot of prophetic literature, we have an immediate and a future fulfillment. We see that in a lot of the prophets. Okay? That there's a prediction that is immediate and then one that is way in the future. That's not uncommon. As a matter of fact, that's the norm in prophetic literature. I'll give you an example, Isaiah 7. Isaiah says, Assyria will be judged, they'll be destroyed. And oh, by the way, the sign of this will be that the virgin will be the child, right? And you read Isaiah 7, you're saying, okay, well, Assyria was destroyed like 100 years after Isaiah. But what about the virgin with child? When does that happen? Well, that happens hundreds of years later. And the New Testament says that is the, that is the, the Lord Jesus Christ who's born of the virgin, so Isaiah, in one sentence, predicts both immediate and far future things that take place, and that is very common for the prophets to do. So that seems like a reasonable argument for this passage. We also have passages where we're meant to understand the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cloud as a, as a very literal event. Most importantly, I think, is Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the disciples are standing there. They see the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven, and they're looking up, and the angel's like, what are you looking at? Okay, This same Jesus will come in the same way that he went. He'll come in the clouds. That is a literal leaving of Jesus and a very literal expectation of his coming on the clouds. Okay, So there's a, a, a reasonable argument against this being fulfilled at this moment. All right? Now, the this, this second perspective then would be that the event that's mentioned in Luke 21, 27 is a future event, okay? That it's found somewhere down here when Christ Jesus returns. And, and now we're here on this side waiting for that return. There's a number of good arguments why that might be the case. I just laid out a few of those for you. But in this understanding of the passage, Jesus hears the questions of Peter, James, John, and Andrew about the destruction of the temple, and he's like, well, I'll answer your question about that, and I'll do you even one better. I'll tell you about what's coming at the end end, okay? And he begins speaking about his return, the return in judgment on all the world. 
that is a reasonable argument given all of the mentions of the world in this passage, right? That the whole world will witness this. That the judgment will be poured out on the whole world. I think that's most importantly in verse 26 and 29. Okay? And so in, in that instance, Jesus is simply speaking ahead to a future coming. And that also has going for it the fact that no, no matter who you are, we all think that Jesus will return one day. There's nobody in this room who looks at this passage and says, Jesus is never coming back. We all do believe that he will return one day. This is simply simplifying and saying, there's the event. It's described right here in Luke 21. Very simple and easy to understand. Okay? But let me mention a few of the problems with this perspective. Most importantly are the time words that Jesus uses. You, you saw a few of them. We, we mentioned he's answering questions and saying, well, this, this will happen and this will happen. Most importantly is verse 32. What does verse 32 says? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. Okay? And I know you've probably wrestled with that, like what, what in the world? How do I make sense of that? R.C. Sproul, when he was writing on this passage, he said, you know, it would have been very easy if Jesus had given the first part of chapter 21, and then he said, this will all take place before this generation passes away. And then he told us the Son of Man is coming in his glory, and we'd say, you're perfect. We can make sense of that. We can make sense of this. It all makes sense. But Jesus says this on the heels of everything that he has described in Luke 21. Some have tried to say that a generation is just the generation of the church, or it's the generation of humanity. But linguists who read this passage say that's not fair for the text. Jesus uses a very specific word. It doesn't mean a general generation. It means a period of 30 to 40 years. Okay? It is as if Jesus says to his disciples, 30 or 40 years will not pass before all these things take place. And Jesus never loosely uses the word all. You've probably heard that before. All of these things will take place. And so we have then reasonable arguments for the coming of the Son of Man and the cloud with great power and glory for both having been fulfilled in history and yet waiting for a future fulfillment. I personally am, am more inclined to think that these things have happened already. Okay, But maybe tomorrow or the next day, New textual argument might sway me one way or the other, okay? I think it is important for us to recognize what this is and not so important to conclusively determine when this is, okay? After all, Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, no one knows the day and the hour, not even the Son of Man. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. And I also think, as we kind of wrap up this text this morning, I also think this is really not the main thrust of the passage to begin with, okay? See, we've so much consumed ourselves the last two weeks with the content of what Jesus is saying because it's very peculiar and strange to us that we've likely missed the very purpose for the passage in the first place. I don't know if you've picked up on it, Jesus has been over and over again exhorting his hearers to take action. This passage is filled with imperative commands, with directions that he is giving to his disciples. 
And if I could go through the text and highlight each of these and, and put them in bold with exclamation points after, I would, because I think as Jesus speaks, his disciples would have taken this away, okay? They wouldn't have been so much concerned with the signs in the heavens or the coming of the Son of Man in judgment as they would have with the commands that Jesus gives them in response to the signs that they would witness. Beginning in verse 8, he says to them, Take heed. Take heed lest you be led astray. In verse 14, he says, Settle your minds not to plan your words, but let the Lord give you the words. In verse 20, he says, Flee the city and depart from it, lest you fall victim to the judgment that is coming on the city of Jerusalem. See, as Jesus is giving this answer to his disciples, he wants them to be aware of this call to action. And in verse 34 and 35 and 36, at the end of the text, there is the most important call to action that the Lord Jesus Christ would give his disciples. It begins in verse 34 like this. Watch yourselves. Watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So the two imperative commands in this part of the passage are so urgent, they're so imperative. Jesus says in 34, watch yourself. And in verse 36, but stay awake. Stay awake. Here, I think, is the main point of the passage. Let me summarize it like this. In all times, the earnest Christian is to be on watch for the signs of the coming of the Lord. In all times, the earnest Christian is to be on watch for the signs of the coming of the Lord. You see, whether ultimately we conclude this morning we're living here or we're living here, whether this event has already come to pass or whether it's speaking of the future return of the Lord, whatever we conclude about this passage, the one thing remains that the call of the Lord Jesus Christ through the, for the church throughout all of history is to remain vigilant, watching and waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as he went, he will also return. That he will one day come back bringing both redemption and judgment. And the question this passage begs is very simple. How will he find us? How will he find us? Will he find us sleeping, slumbering, stumbling through life? Will he find us with dissipation and drunkenness, consumed for the cares of this world? Or will he find us watching, waiting? Will he find us awake, 
The call is for us to live as those who know that our Lord and Savior one day is coming again. That he indeed will return. How will he find us, Mercy Presbyterian Church, when he returns? How will he find us when we stand before the Son of Man? That's the urgency of this passage. It's the vigilance we're called to. It's the words of the Lord for the church for us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we ask our Lord and our God that you would work through the proclamation of your word to stretch us, to grow us, to encourage us, and to strengthen us for the day of great trouble. For we know that while we live in this world, we do encounter trials of various kinds. But we also know, our Lord and our God, that you have overcome sin, death, and the grave. So we ask, our Lord and our God, that you would give us victory through your Son. It is in his name we pray. Amen.